This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The federal government has just announced plans for a radioactive waste dump in Kimba on Bangala country. BHP is expanding the Olympic Dam uranium mine. Now is the time to join the radioactive resistance. Hit the road with Friends of the Earth Melbourne's Nuclear Free Collective as we travel to frontline communities and see how the nuclear industry impacts people. The radioactive exposure tour will run from April 10 to 19 this year. More details on melbournefoe.org.au slash radtour2020 or contact us on radexposuretour at gmail.com. Foe's Nuclear Free Campaign is a 3CR supporter. 3CR And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, before we do kick off on our uh, little exploration of politics this morning, uh, I just want to tell you about uh, something that's coming up. It's, uh, it starts at 2pm today. It's uh, from menace to the mantra. To the mantra, um, refugee supporters are going to rally this Saturday at two p.m. at the Mantra Hotel in at two hundred and fifteen Bell Street in Preston. And the reason for this is because fifty-five refugees are being held in closed detention at the Mantra Hotel in Preston and 41 in Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation Detention Centre in Broadmeadows. And another 150 are being held in locations in Brisbane. Uh, This has been uh, made clear to us by Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. Now, they're all going to... uh, People are going to gather outside the... uh, Mantra today at uh, 215 Bell Street, Preston, uh, at 2pm in support of these uh, refugees that are being held there uh, and wanting to find out from the government. They want them to please explain why Australian uh, public money is being used to basically continue the torture of refugees when we have our international responsibilities for... uh, uh, refugee welfare. Now we're going to go to uh, the important business. That important business now over. We're going to go back to the 14th, 15th of February to the National Climate Summit. This is only a few things that were talked about at that summit. It's a, merely a taster, but uh, I've put together some things. There are other things that could be brought to your attention from that summit. 
but um, here's a little bit of a taster. It's now my great pleasure to invite to the podium the federal member for Melbourne and newly elected leader of the Greens, Adam Bant. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Uncle Dave, for that very generous and insightful welcome to Wurundjeri country. And I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this is stolen land, that sovereignty was never ceded and now more than ever, it's time for treaties with our First Nations communities. Because, and also to acknowledge, as Cathy and the Lord Mayor did, that around the world, First Nations communities are at the front line of climate impacts and are crucial to solving the climate emergency. I want to acknowledge all of the distinguished guests and also acknowledge and thank our emergency services and community volunteers who've been working so hard to protect us in the past months as we face the unprecedented coal-fuelled bushfire crisis. I want to <clears throat> also want to say welcome to all of you who are visiting this excellent electorate of Melbourne, but to every one of you, whether this is your first time or you're, you've been here many times before, I want to say thank you because you are a wonderful sight here and if our global civilization can survive the environmental and climate emergency, the history books will record that on this day and in this place, you came together to find a pathway to a safe climate and you will all be considered heroes and you deserve a huge round of applause. Now. I've just spent the last two weeks in Parliament and it is hard to describe the continued level of denial and spin that is constantly on display in Canberra. We had people whose houses had burned over the summer come up to Canberra to the doorstep of Parliament with what was left of their homes in wheelbarrows and buckets. They spoke powerfully and eloquently about the impacts of the climate emergency on their lives and I was humbled to meet with some of them. But for most of Parliament, it was like they were invisible. It's like being in the twilight zone up there. You've got the Barnaby and his band of nationals wanting to build more coal-fired power stations, to the Prime Minister's contortions over climate and the bushfire crisis and the shameless deception, as though everything is under control while their inaction is driving us to a three to four degree warmer world that will completely overrule our, and overrun our economy and society. And unfortunately, a Labor opposition that persistently defends the continued role of coal in our economy, both for energy and export, and who has dropped their 2030 targets. So it is wonderful to be back here among friends who accept the truth of the crisis and who, as Greta Thunberg says, want us to listen to the scientists and act accordingly. And as... Now, as you may know, last week I was elected to be leader of the Australian Greens and in my first media conference after being, um, becoming Greens leader, I said that I refuse to accept a future where our children need to wear gas masks because their cities are full of smoke. And I also spoke about the people that I met who I talk to every day 
and kids are foremost amongst them who are angry and anxious and who are desperately looking for leadership. Now is the time to tell it like it is. No more spin, no more half-truths. Tell it like it is. Now is the time to face up to the reality of the powers that we face if we are to save the planet and save the future. We are in a climate emergency because of politicians and power brokers trying to preserve a status quo that sees the coal and oil and gas barons get rich and then funnel off a tiny bit of their wealth to political parties when they're in power and then give those politicians cushy jobs in their organisation when they leave office. This is what has taken us past one degree of global warming, which has given us towering infernos, flooding, record heat waves, toxic air, pollution, and so much more. And the last time that there was this much carbon dioxide in the air was at least 2.6 million years ago before humans existed. And back then, temperatures were more than three degrees warmer. There were trees in Antarctica and sea levels were 25 metres higher. And if we keep polluting at our current rate, we could be at 1,000 parts per million by the end of the century. And the last time that that happened, dinosaurs roamed the earth. Like them, we face an existential crisis brought on by a rapid shift in the climate system, but this time it is human-induced. The warming track of up to four degrees that we are on is a world full of death and destruction and hopelessness. It will be a world that may be capable of only supporting a billion people, perhaps less. And that is horrible to contemplate, but it is real. Now, even if there was only a 1% chance, a 1% chance of this occurring, the potential outcome is so bad that we should mobilise the entire machinery of government and society towards avoiding this possibility. When the Allies won World War II, it wasn't just because the US and other governments put their resources into winning it. The war was won because government and industry and communities worked together to meet an unprecedented threat. In 1942, America, a spark plug factory started producing machine guns. A merry-go-round factory made gun mounts. A pinball machine plant made armour-piecing shells. And a toy company started making compasses. Now, by working together, government and industry and the American people met and triumphed over an existential and unprecedented threat. Now, we don't need to militarise, we need to decarbonise. But fast forward 80 years, and nothing like that is happening in Australia. We have some amazing parts of industry, including people in this room, who are starting to transform our energy sector. And the economics are in your favour, that we know. But we also have other parts of industry trying desperately to hold back this tide, and we have a government that is joining them. Now, we had the beginnings of something in the 2010 shared power government where Greens, Labor and Independents worked together to implement the clean energy package. But later, we became the first nation ever to rescind a carbon price. Now, I have an unwavering belief that notwithstanding the current fossil fools that are in government, that nothing will stop the clean energy revolution. Nothing will stop scientists and engineers and businesses from solving these problems. We will get there eventually. But the only problem is we don't have until eventually. We need to act super fast. 
if we only reach net zero by 2050, or 2060, or 2070, we will still confront disaster. And that is why the government and the whole of society must recognise we are in an emergency and take action at emergency speed, devoting all the resources we need to stop a threat that may otherwise simply become overwhelming. Now, I know that there are some who get nervous when he talks about emergency. Some have said, well, emergency is about reinforcing the potential for a suspension of rights. But there's also a way of talking about emergency that's not about police and military, but about rescue. Ambulances under lights and sirens take emergency action, and no one thinks they're taking away your rights. Firefighters take emergency action, and they do it to save life. We, all of us, everyone in this room, we all now, to become, now need to become the firefighters of human history. We are the ones who are ringing the alarm bells but also pointing towards the exit. And over the next two years, the Greens will continue to push for a declaration of environment and climate emergency by the Australian Parliament. Next fortnight... I'll introduce to the Commonwealth Parliament the Climate Emergency Declaration Bill. The bill will declare a climate emergency, require every government department to be guided by the declaration, and mandate the establishment of what in the past was called a war cabinet to guide the country through a rapid society and economy-wide mobilisation to decarbonise the economy. This bill reflects the scale of the crisis we face and represents the scale of action that is needed. Now, Winston Churchill was a flawed man and a flawed Prime Minister, but in his greatest hours, he reached across the aisle during World War II and formed a grand coalition with the Labor Party and others. And I know it seems incomprehensible that in today's political context this could happen, but instead of having reached across the aisle and have a coalition for coal, we need to fight for a coalition to tackle the climate emergency. It's what should happen and it's what we've got to keep fighting for because the time for appeasement is over. This, this is why it's time for a Green New Deal. A Green New Deal is a government-led plan of investment and action to build a clean economy and a caring society. A plan where we can fight the climate crisis and the inequality crisis at the same time. I want to create a manufacturing renaissance in this country. I want to make Australia the renewable energy superpower where people bring their businesses from overseas for cheap, clean electricity as we urgently phase out coal. Like, let's export renewable energy while processing our minerals and making the things the world needs here in Australia, as Ross Garneau proposes. I want Australia to make things again, and with a Green New Deal, we can. And over the coming months and years, I'll be travelling the country hosting town hall meetings, community gatherings and kitchen table conversations, explaining how a Green New Deal can provide the hope and action we need to solve the climate crisis. Because just shouting fire at someone doesn't help them find the exit. We need to provide the pathway to safety too. Talking about emergency means ringing the alarm bells and also finding the exit. And that's what a Green New Deal a plan for a whole of society mobilisation provides. And I firmly believe that by showing that emergency action on climate can make people's lives better, protecting their lives and their children's lives, 
we will mobilise a powerful movement that will change our country and save the future. Friends, our country is on fire and our planet is heading the same way. We have no choice but to tell the truth about the crisis and to face up to what is needed. The time for half measures is over because time is running out. So please, use the next two days to generate the energy and ideas that is going to make our movement stronger and more powerful so that together we can save the future. Good luck and thank you. I'm the Deputy Mayor of Bass Coast Shire Council. I'm here with another councillor and one of our officers. We passed the emergency climate declaration a couple of meetings ago and we're enabling our action plans starting next week and we're here to figure out how we can get things done quickly. Good on you. So um, you, you're taking this very seriously? Oh, totally. The other councillor that's with me here, he's in another room, he's been, he did his first climate report in 1978. And this is like his whole life story's culminated in being on council and being able... We've got 140 kilometres of coastline and we've got 100 square miles of hinterland. The hinterland's rushing down into the coastline. The coastline's disappearing. We need to work out what to do about it. Do you just do it or was there a sort of template for how you put action plans to go with it? We looked at how other shires and that have done it. We kind of worked out our own one based on what worked and what hasn't worked. And we're forming an advisory committee from the community, which includes indigenous folks, um, business people, environmental experts and community members. And they're gonna act like a steering committee for our action plan in that. Yeah, we think keeping everybody engaged is the main thing. Why did you ask that question? Well, I'm... Um just a, a, a ratepayer in the Shire of Yarra Ranges and I know oh. they have also adopted a climate emergency but I thought I must go back and ask them if they have an action plan and then I, when Peter Garrett was talking I thought his speech about what you would do in federal parliament could be a good template for all councils to then adopt. Sort of a exactly. local level leadership plan. Yes, yes, what would be appropriate and what local councils have got the authority to do. Yeah. Leading heart greenies a few times. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. What was the reaction when um, the fires came? Yeah, suddenly take, people suddenly take it all very seriously and actually want, they start clearing up their yards and all that like they should have done years ago. Yeah, no, very good reaction. Since 2018, understanding of the climate emergency has exploded globally. Everybody's talking about it. Look at this room today. The Oxford Dictionary last year named the two words climate emergency their word of the year. And as we've heard already, more than 1,100 regional, national and local governments around the world have already declared a climate emergency. Understanding of the emergency and the existential risks that we 
phase have been driven by many factors, including those local government campaigns. Greta Thunberg's brutally direct language and the students' strike for climate movement and the advocacy of groups like the climate mobilisation in, in the United States, Extinction Rebellion and campaigns for Green New Deal. Recent polling from the Australia Institute finds a clear majority of Australians agree with the propositions that the nation is facing a climate emergency requiring emergency action and that in response governments should mobilise all the society like they did during world wars. And a recent essential poll found that 64%, two-thirds of Australians, support, and I quote, setting a zero carbon pollution target for 2030, unquote. These are, these are amazing polling results given what happens in Canberra. Turning recognition of the climate emergency into an emergency plan and mobilisation around the world is the only strategy that matches ambition to the scale of the problem. But what does this phrase, climate emergency, mean? In 2008, as Joe mentioned, Philip Sutton and I deployed the phrase in a book, Climate Code Read, the case for emergency action. Seems a long time ago. Um, in that book, we described an emergency response as one in which there's immediate looming threat to life, health, property and the environment, that there is a probability of it simply becoming overwhelming, that the speed of response is crucial and that the crisis is the highest priority for the duration, that bipartisanship and effective leadership are generally the norm and all the resources necessary are applied to solve the problem. All of those things are exactly what we have done during the recent bushfire. So Professor Will Steffen says that climate should be, in his words, the primary target of policy and economics, with something more like a wartime footing to roll out the transformation at very fast rates. I think that's a great definition of what we're talking about. I came today because I think every citizen should be responding in this instance around how we are going to manage our place into the future. So yeah, the day has left me with a lot more things to think about. I'm very keen to see sort of direct, uh, actionable things coming and I think maybe we need to do a bit more of that tomorrow. So yeah, looking forward to tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, given, one, the fires, but also a sense that uh, fracking and coal have, have not been kicked off the agenda, this is really uh, a good time to have such a summit. I think so too. Like I've been in the activist world for a very long time and you go through cycles of energy and then exhaustion and then despair and then energy again. And um, you know, I think something like today is encouraging to see the number of people, but also you know, I think we need to know how we manage this very long journey because inevitably still, you're right, fracking and new coal mines, et cetera, et cetera, still play a very big part in our our um, country but also our psyche and you know we often come to these places and think oh well, we're talking to the same circle of people and our challenge is how do we see how do we get all all of our community understanding the import and that we can we can make a difference like I was having an argument with a f dear friend who 
who's also been an activist a long time, oh, you know, it's nothing we, there's nothing really that we can do, it's not changing, but I think we can be encouraged that even in the last few years there's been a politicised shift, so let's take some heart with that and reinvest. And as some of them have said, actually, we don't have any choice. Exactly, <laughs> ultimately, but, you know, the human... The human uh, brain is an interesting thing, and I mean, it was mentioned just then, you know, we don't necessarily think, oh, it's not going to happen to us. Like, we're very futurist in thinking, oh, it's not, you know, it's not really about us, but it's not really about what I'm, what, what did you say? It's not really about what I'm doing in terms of washing my dishes. So the reality of it in a daily practice is very different than the, the, the blah, blah, but it's the daily practice that we need to be uh, supporting and encouraging. Thanks for talking to me. I'm from 3CR and I was just wondering why you came today and what have you got from it? Um, I'm the Sustainable Energy Officer at Princeton City Council yep. and I came today to help find some actions that people can take and some ways that we can facilitate the action with the, our community. In a really practical way? In a practical way, yeah, the action, practical. And have you found any? Yes, lots of inspiration, awesome today, loved it so far. And good networking opportunity? Absolutely people everywhere that we can talk to and gain some inspiration yeah. from. There was a just a whole session with count people who, three, two-thirds I'd say were to do with councils, say were either employed by them or were uh, doing work with them. So that's a very interesting networking opportunity, isn't it? Absolutely. And this is what it was focused on, was local councils, who they're trying to get in. And so, yeah, we all showed up. I'm from 3CR and I'm just asking people why they've come and did they get something out of it? Uh, look, I've come because I've been concerned about climate change for a long time and I wor have worked with and still work with organisations that support community empowerment amongst developing country contexts um, with communities really, really profoundly affected negatively by climate change impacts. So I've come with a Nepali colleague of mine to raise awareness about the issues and consider how we together can you know, work on raising the question of the climate emergency here. Uh, I've definitely got a lot out of it. I, um, I think the clarity of the emergency that we face and um, also the discussion of how do, we, how do we use effective messaging in a kind of divided and a little bit controversial context to move people towards stronger and stronger action and build a social movement that can put sufficient pressure on government to take the action that's required. So it becomes the new normal. So it becomes, exactly. So responding to climate change is just what we do instead of something we argue about. Yeah. Um, I, I think there was some really good insights and just, again, the energy. And I, I had a slight sadness coming because I, I actually wanted to, to book tickets for six of us so I had a small group of Nepali people there were so few tickets I could only book two so it's just me and one Nepali colleague um, so I was sad that I couldn't bring six but super happy that uh, the whole place was booked out so yeah you're right no. um, good networking opportunity and also a great networking opportunity yeah really good to meet a whole bunch of people engaging on this issue from such a variety of different angles yeah were you interested in the fact that it's actually local government I mean, this is Melbourne City Council's right. auspice really. I mean yeah. it's just it's the sustainable usually it's a sustainable f uh, living festival but they've decided to have a summit instead oh, okay. because they thought it would be more effective yeah. and they're probably right yeah. but the collaboration with local councils and the peak local council in Melbourne is pretty fascinating. Again it's one of those things that I feel both inspired and horrified by the fact that 
local government and to some extent state government, although I'm from New South Wales and our government's got a very mixed very mixed record on this, um, giving with one hand and absolutely clawing back with the other. But um, but that, that actually so much of the energy does happen at the local government, city and state level, with the federal government essentially acting as a break and a barrier to more transformative action. So... On the one hand, it's really inspiring, and it is at this level that as more people get engaged at the grassroots, hopefully that can scale up to pressure those higher levels of government. And on the other hand, well, it, is, see, really. it, is sad, it is sad that we still have a, a federal parliament that um, might still not even debate a climate emergency motion, might not even put it to a conscience vote, as, as Zali Stegall's proposing. So... Also, Mostly I feel energised and inspired, but there is, yeah. It's a bit of a worry. It is a worry. I'll, I'll have to say that a couple, of year, the, a couple a year before they got re-elected, I went to an event where uh, their energy environment minister yes. uh, was talking about how their policy was all about fracking and coal <laughs> and how we're going to make all the states frack. Yes. So they didn't tell a lie. Yeah. The f- look, the first public engagement that the Energy and Emissions Reductions Minister Angus Taylor made in the fire-affected regions south of of Sydney, so around Bargo, Tarmor, etc., was to attend the reopening of the Tarmor coal mine, which had been briefly closed because of the fire risk in that area, and his response was to be publicly present at the reopening of that mine that had been temporarily closed. And that really does speak volumes about his personal priorities and the government's willingness to just keep pushing the fossil fuel barrow and doing the work of that industry for them. Yeah, so, to the detriment of all of us. Yeah, so everyone's here in reaction, I'd say. Yeah, it, I mean, yes, I think that's right. People are more energised, uh, more... I think there's a positive... Ang- I mean, they talked a lot about fear in that session and how do we respond to concern- fear and concern. I think there's also Anxiety. a level of... Yeah, and I, but I also think there's a level of justifiable anger that our leaders are actually letting us down and that we are, won't sit by. We want to take uh, measures, want to take things into our own hands because we don't feel we're being well served by our leaders who aren't looking after our interests, who aren't looking after my children's interests, future generations, the environment that you know that we live in. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. No worries. Thanks so much. Well, I uh, I find it terribly mainstream. I mean, they're saying some good stuff, but okay, to put it bluntly. I'm an eco-socialist, and I have yet to hear the word capitalism being used, and for me, that is the elephant in the room. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've just been listening to some snippets from the uh, 
National Climate Summit, Summit that was held down at the Melbourne Town Hall on the 14th to the 15th of February. And uh, uh, at the... Um, it was. It was. It, there was a lot of sessions. There were a lot of sessions, and one of the sessions that I thought, uh, just to finish off, to to round up on this particular issue, was uh, a, an issue. Uh, there was a legal session, and um, <coughs> excuse me. There was a. Um, th- this is a snippet from that legal uh, assist, um, session, and the reason for why I found it interesting was because. We're talking about how our system is maintained. One of the uh, levers, of course, is the law. And uh, there were two people there that were talking about particular things that have happened within the system that uh, uh, sort of uh, talk to uh, potential change. Well, one was Elaine Johnson. She's the principal lawyer for the Environmental Defenders Office. You may or may not even know that they exist, but... She has something really interesting to say about the uh, ruling that was uh, a New South Wales judge who didn't allow a uh, didn't give um, the okay to a a new coal mine on the premise that uh, it's a a problem for our uh, greenhouse emissions uh, targets, which was uh, sent shivers down the spine of uh, the capitalist class and sent the uh, New South Wales government event, uh, immediately into bat to change legislative um, abilities of that particular court, the Environment Court, to make such decisions. Which, But anyway, she'll describe that. But then there's also Nicole Rogers. She's the, an associate professor at the School of Law and Justice at the Southern Cross University. And she's talking about the defence that uh, Greg Rolls, an um, environmental activist, took to court uh, when he was charged for obstruction when he put himself, his body in the line uh, over uh, a train carrying coal. <clears throat> and people might remember that Greg Rolls is actually a former uh, 3CR broadcaster for Earth Matters, so uh, more power to his arm. So it's uh, particularly interesting to 3CR listeners. So here we go. One of the fundamental problems we have in Australia is we don't have a Bill of Rights. So we really are hamstrung in terms of um, being able to rely on human rights to um, to apply to courts to seek relief in relation to um, harm that arises as a result of the climate emergency. Um, so where we work um, a lot at the moment is in terms of those existing laws that we have that regulate how we develop the fossil fuel um, production in in the states, and, and most of that law is state based. So the Rocky Hill case was, um, I suppose, really a landmark case on the climate litigation space in the Australian context. The reason why it was a landmark case is because it was the first time that climate science had been brought into the judicial system and that it was the first time that um, the community had an opportunity to put to a judge, and a senior judge, the Chief Judge of the Land and Environment Court in New South Wales, which is a court of superior record, so it holds the same status as the Supreme Court, um, and our clients through that case were able to put forward to the Chief Judge 
evidence from leading climate scientists on how we address the climate emergency. So we were fortunate in that case to have um, Professor Will Steffen, who's a well-known Australian climate scientist and, and one of the leading climate scientists that we that we have available to us here in Australia, was able to give evidence to the Chief Judge about um, using a carbon budget approach when we look at ex extraction of fossil fuels in Australia. Um, and Will Stephan's evidence was um, accepted by the court that we do have a limited carbon budget um, globally and that, um, that we're nearly approaching the limit um, at which we can continue to emit greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and that um, Will's evidence was that we, um, we already have enough fossil fuel projects approved um, across the globe um, to exceed that carbon budget. So any further approvals and expansions of fossil fuels, it would be inconsistent with maintaining a safe and stable climate and we can already see that we're having the impacts of even a one degree rise in global temperature and certainly the events of the Australian um, summer have made that very clear to, to many people who may not previously have been thinking about the climate emergency or had it at the forefront of their minds. Um, so that case was really important because it brought into that very conservative space, which is the judiciary, these really important concepts about climate science and what we need to do to avoid the looming and um, unfolding emergency that we're seeing in Australia. Um, and I just wanted to read to you what um, the Chief Judge had said in the conclusion to his judgment, because I think it's really important. It shows that we do, although our laws are, are inadequate, we do have recognition through the judiciary about the climate emergency. And this is what Chief Judge Preston said. He said, in short, an open-cut coal mine in this part of the Gloucester Valley would be in the wrong place at the wrong time. The wrong place because an open-cut coal mine in this scenic cultural landscape proximate to many people's homes and farms will cause significant planning, amenity, visual and social impacts. The wrong time because the greenhouse gas emissions of a coal mine and its coal product will increase global total concentrations of greenhouse gases at a time when what is now urgently needed in order to generally meet agreed climate targets is a rapid and deep decrease in greenhouse gas emissions. These dire consequences should be avoided. The project should be refused. So the government response to this judgment was um, uh, obviously quite, um, you know, predictable. Um, following the decision in the Rocky Hill case, which came down in February last year, a further new open-cut greenfield coal mine was refused by the Independent Planning Commission relying on the kinds of findings and evidence that Preston had um, set forward in his um, 700 paragraph judgment. Um, and uh, just after the Bylong coal mine was refused, which was the second coal mine that we've had refused on climate grounds in, in Australia, um, the New South Wales Minerals Council launched a massive uh, campaign against the planning minister and against the commission itself. Um, that was a three-day campaign across all <laughs> forms of media um, and the response from government was swift. So what we see now is um, there's a bill that's currently before the state parliament um, to, amend, uh, um, to amend our environmental laws to restrict the way that the commission can deal with greenhouse gas emissions. 
Um, and we also um, understand as part of that package that the government's preparing guidelines for the Commission on how to assess greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so we can see that the response from government to this kind of judicial decision, which is a, a conservative decision, which applies traditional legal principles to the, the science of climate change, and um, the response to that has been quite extraordinary. So I agree with Ian what he says about the limitations of, of the current rules. In the context that we're trying to explore here around, I guess, emergency action, it's these things that you need in the toolkit, that spanners that you can throw in the works in an immediate project that are going to be the most powerful, I guess, perhaps, even though there's longer-term actions around justice um, and crimes against humanity are going to be so defining as well. So lots to come back to there. But we're quickly going through our time. So, um, Nicole, um, looking at your bio, I see that you're probably the best equipped to talk to us about things like climate activism because that's something that you've before and around the constraints on that, the questions I asked before. But I think the one thing you wanted to start off talking about here was around necessity. Let's talk about that. Yes. Um, I just, can I just pick up on a few points that the others have made? Um, the first is crimes against you. Just to 
make it clear that climate time and judicial time are pretty well at odds other than when it comes to um, Chief Judge Brian Preston's courtroom. Um, the, really, the formal letter which launched the agenda case was written by um, Agenda in 2012, and it's only just now we've had the final appellate decision handed down in that case. Um, the Juliana lawsuit is still working its way through the US court system. That was begun in 2015. The whole point of that lawsuit is that it's young yeah. people launching it, teenagers launching it. They're going to be ancient by the time it finally you know, gets to the US Supreme Court. So, um, so climate time and legal time don't really sit well together when you're looking at a climate emergency, which brings me <laughs> to um, the defence of necessity, because that's a really quick expeditious way to get the climate emergency into the courtroom. Um, okay, so the defence of necessity um, basically operates a common law along these lines, um, that in a situation where you're acting to prevent an irreparable evil, um, you are entitled to break the law to, to, to do that, to prevent the evil from occurring. That's the common law version. And activists have been using or trying to use the defence of necessity in the UK and the US for over a decade with some limited success. So in 2008, we had the King's North Six decision, which kind of was pretty groundbreaking, where six Greenpeace activists who painted graffiti on the King's North um, power station in the UK were acquitted on the basis of necessity. They had really eminent um, witnesses testifying in their defence about the evils of climate change, including James Hansen. Um, but following that, um, there hasn't been a lot of success in the UK until last year. Roger Hallam, who you may know, may not know, one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion, um, was, he and a colleague were acquitted by a jury on the basis of necessity of similar graffiti damages. They painted divestment slogans on the walls of King's College in London. Um, and just very recently there's been a Swiss case where uh, the defence of necessity has been um, um, successfully argued by activists. In the United States there's a lot of stumbling blocks, although um, an organisation called the Climate Defence Project who represents activists is... is arguing necessity where they can, as often as they can. Um, judges really don't like necessity, and the reason for that is because necessity, like emergency, is like a legal black hole. And for judges, that, well, for all of us, that's pretty terrifying. So when you look at necessity, you're basically in an area where the law is saying it's okay to break the law. Um, when you're looking at emergency, that's exactly the same thing. It's okay to avoid legal rules to, you know, trample on human rights, so on and so forth, in, in, you know, in, in really extreme states of exception, states of emergency, that's what we see. So um, climate change pushes us into those zones. Um, now, in Queensland, also in Victoria and a couple of other Australian jurisdictions, that common law defence of necessity has been codified and we have the extraordinary emergency defence. Um, and... Uh, in Queensland in May last year, Greg Rolls, a really brave um, activist, used or tried to use the extraordinary emergency defence um, when he pleaded not guilty to an offence involving interfering with a railway line, the railway line that transports coal to the port terminals in North Queensland. 
Um, Greg self-represented. We couldn't get there to help him, although we were advising him from afar. And he did an amazing job. And he is a climate hero. And he's facing bankruptcy as a result of um, his various um, feats of activism, including that one. The magistrate imposed a very, very heavy fine on him. Um, now, I just want to explain more about the Extraordinary Emergency Defence, and um, it appears in the Queensland Criminal Code in Section 25. Basically, what it says is if there is an extraordinary or sudden emergency, um, then you are able to break the law if that's what an ordinary person with ordinary power of self-control would reasonably do. Which is pretty fascinating when you think about it. Like, what is an ordinary person with ordinary power of self-control reasonably supposed to do when faced with the political recalcitrance that we're seeing in relation to climate mitigation? Well, are we supposed to just kind of switch to vegan diets and stop flying and not have children? Or are we, are we impelled to actually break the law in order to try to compel the sorts of transformative changes that we actually need to see happening rapidly? So Greg... Um, First of all, had to demonstrate that climate change is an extraordinary emergency, and he had an IPCC, IPCC leading author, scientist, um, giving evidence in his trial, um, Professor Brendan Mackey, um, and he said that his scientific conclusion, looking at the catastrophic impacts of climate change, including bushfire risk, this was in May last year, um, that climate change is an extraordinary emergency. The magistrate dismissed that. Um, then Greg also had to look at that second limb. What would an ordinary person with ordinary power of self-control reasonably do? And I just want to emphasise here, it doesn't mean what, what are ordinary people actually doing. It doesn't, we don't have to demonstrate that activism is commonplace or widespread or, or, or anything like that. It is, the question is, is it a reasonable response uh, by an ordinary person with ordinary power of self-control? It was, again, the magistrate was um, very harsh on Greg in relation to that particular part of the test. Um, now, Greg is appealing that, that decision, um, but in a couple of weeks in Brisbane, two other climate activists who were arrested in August last year in the, um, on Rebellion Day, um, are going, two women are going to be raising the extraordinary emergency defence in the Brisbane Magistrates Court. Um, and Professor Mackey is again giving scientific evidence as to why climate change is an extraordinary emergency, but of course the context has now shifted a little um, in that we now have some really, really solid evidence of the catastrophic impacts of climate change in Australia. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see if, um, unlike the Bowen Magistrates Court where we um, encountered um, a magistrate who was very determined not to concede that climate change is an extraordinary emergency, we will at least see in, in, that, in that trial, in those proceedings, some sort of shift in terms of judicial acknowledgement about climate change being an extraordinary emergency and, um, and, and that will be groundbreaking. Right here, right now, is where we draw the line. Right here, right now, right here, right now. Right here, 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 right
Welcome to episode 7 of Schools Out. For the first episode of 2020, we talked with school strike and Extinction Rebellion activist Molly Roberts about what's happened in the climate movement over the summer break. A group of more than 200 scientists recently urged returning parliamentarians to reduce Australia's total greenhouse gas emissions. But the Morrison-led government is in fighting, as usual, about forming policy to reduce emissions. Just today, Deputy Leader and Leader of the Nationals, Michael McCormack, said he doesn't support a policy for zero emissions by 2050. How frustrated do you think young people get as they watch their future being destroyed because politicians can't listen to science and act accordingly? Last week was the first sitting week of both the upper and lower houses in Canberra, and climate activists from around the country gave them a huge welcome party. We are fed up with politicians denying the science and not acknowledging the climate crisis that we are in. So we did stage a number of protests at the front of the Australian Parliament and we won't stop until politicians do take the climate crisis seriously and start acting on our demands. The government are using terms such as mitigation and adaptation to reduce their need to fully acknowledge the climate crisis. What do you think about this tactic? We have seen continually Scott Morrison in particular totally dodge questions by the media about the climate crisis and start waffling on about how they are adequately managing the bushfire crisis and how they're pulling all their resources in and this is the best response. And Scott Morrison hasn't acknowledged yet that we are in a climate crisis and it's frustrating that we can't actually have real action on the situation that we are in because our leader is not taking it seriously or acknowledging it for what it is. It's very frustrating. It's been a horrific summer of fires and other disasters. As a young person involved in the climate movement, how do you think younger people have been impacted? The destruction that the whole country has seen from this massive bushfire season um, is unprecedented. It's it's devastating and it's tragic. So many people have lost their homes. Millions of wildlife have been killed. People have been displaced and our politicians couldn't care less. We've staged multiple actions where just last week lining the walk up to Parliament House with burnt pieces of people's homes and still we're not seeing action. So it has been very devastating, especially as well for First Nations people who still from first invasion have a feeling of of loss and we wouldn't be in this situation if we listened to First Nations people and to Indigenous climate responses. Over the bushfire season, School Strike for Climate Socials um, have been following the impacts that the fires have had on everyday people like you and me and on students and on young people. So the School Strike for Climate Instagram is a great one to follow to see the, the terrible losses that people have been experiencing that our politicians are ignoring. How have you been involved in the climate movement over the summer? 
Um, the summer holidays were supposed to be a time of regeneration as while we still had many actions and many meetings behind the scenes, we've been um, focusing mainly on our regenerative culture and of making sure that we don't burn out because we've got a big year ahead. We know that time is running out to act on the climate and ecological crisis and so we've been taking the time to, well somewhat, to rest up and to do regenerative actions like tree planting and we've had art days to prepare for the big year ahead. So we have a big rebellion coming up again in April, so that's going to need everyone. So we've been doing a lot of outreach and gathering as many people as we can in time for the April International Rebellion. For School Strike for Climate, we've just started planning for the next big international strike for climate justice, which is on May the 15th. So we're busy at the moment preparing all the gear, recruiting marshals, which, by the way, this strike is going to be so much bigger than September 20. So if you are wanting to help out, we are in need of marshals. So please get into contact with School Strike for Climate if you're wanting to be a marshal on the day. Can you relate any personal stories of young climate change activists? On the summer holidays, my family drove up to Queensland to visit family in Queensland and we drove back and we drove along the New South Wales coast, which, as you'd know, was um, at the time blanketed in smoke and spotted in fires. And it was really heartbreaking to see the destruction that all of the fires had had on the land and there's just completely blackened country, just black trees everywhere. And it was pretty devastating. We saw a couple of fires being put out or the aftermath of big fires and road closures, melted road signs and the wildlife, the dead bodies everywhere. Extremely concerning. And over the summer, we saw thousands of people being put onto lockdown mode and um, having to hide on beaches while the hopefully the fire wouldn't reach the town. 17-year-old school striker Kelsey Town Berenbing in New South Wales was hit by fires before Christmas, leaving their family, leaving their farmland, their horses under threat from the fires and their land just totally blackened. Yeah, we've had school strikers who haven't had a, a Christmas with their family because, or in their own homes because they've been displaced, their houses have been burnt down and very grateful for the rain at the moment because just a couple of days ago the RFS announced that all the fires for the first time um, this bushfire season are now contained. So very, very happy news and very grateful for the rain. What's XR and XR Youth doing lately? So we've just started up um, meetings for XR Youth in Nam or Biranga, also known as Melbourne. We've been having meetings weekly, so on Sundays at 1.30 in Treasury Gardens. So feel free, if you identify as youth, to please come along to XR Youth meetings. But make sure to follow us on social media to make sure of the times and dates for meetings. If you're wanting to get further involved, you can also look up the Extinction Rebellion socials for Australia and we have quite regular meetings that everyone is welcome to attend.
A group of more than 200 scientists recently urged returning parliamentarians to reduce Australia's total greenhouse gas emissions. But the Morrison-led government is in fighting, as usual, about forming policy to reduce emissions. What are some of the specific campaigns doing at the moment in response? Extinction Rebellion has staged a number of protests over the summer, including a Quiet Australians at the Australian Open, which was in response to Gummo's comment on the Quiet Australians being the ones who are being impacted by reckless protests and people who weren't being considerate of everyday Australians, when in reality we are everyday Australians and we are everyday people who are concerned about the climate crisis. So we, at the moment, yeah, we're preparing for the International Rebellion in, um, in April. How is the Jabberwong Tent Embassy movement going? The front line at the Jabberwong Embassy at the moment is struggling because of misinformation from the media about how the trees have been saved and how a compromise has been reached. But in reality... The trees are still very much under threat and so is the country and its people's history and culture. So people are still urgently needed to go down and support the embassy, even if you just head up for a weekend or just one night or a day to bring supplies. Greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening to Schools Out and thanks to Molly Roberts for joining us on the show. Right here, right now is where we draw the line. Right here, right now. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when last week we were excited that the Socialist Party had developed a detailed policy to address climate change, just in case there is such a thing, Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being oozy, proudly declaring the policy is to think seriously about developing a policy. Uh, putting the socialist light years ahead of the caring business class and hayseed and cheap shit lots. And if a policy to think about a policy wasn't a big enough threat to the economy, obviously a bigger threat than climate change, if there is such, a all being oozy added, they would aim at zero emissions by 2050 and, and why they'll start thinking about taking it really, really seriously by as soon as 2049. That was enough to cause apoplexy on the government side, declaring attempting to address climate change, if there is, within 30 years, would destroy the economy as we know it, and we'd have a 100% unemployment rate. 100% of jobs would be lost. Scenes like Barnacle and that hardline socialist Joel Fitzgibbon Cole enjoying a profound reason debate in the corridors of puppet power when Barnacle and Joel's policy on coal is almost identical. Imagine the depth of depth of the debate if they had real differences. Although Barnacle seemed to be the one having the fits bit of fits given coal. In fact, let's be honest, hazard hazard is to concede. I know we've always been a big fan, but sadly, I think we have to admit Barnacle's finally gone totally mad. Either that, or he was impersonating a red-faced, brainless octopus. Fitzgibbon Cole ended with, Barnacle, stop making a fool of yourself. That's like asking him not to get out of bed every day. It's an eight. 
The fossil pollution minister, Angus Tailings, predicting the end of the world if zero in 30 years was adopted, we can be sure he wouldn't see the irony in that, said he was developing policy, not science. Don't get me wrong, we respect science, but the important thing now is policy, 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 technology. Uh, based on science, Angus. Uh, based on policy. Also policy, this sports wrought business, given Scuttlebem's totally neutral department head, said there was nothing wrong and the Auditor General has to no idea what he's talking about. And anyway, even if there was something wrong, which there isn't, Scuttlebem knew nothing about that which wasn't wrong and had no influence whatever on the fact that the money just happened to go to, well, we know all that. Because Scuttlebem only sent 136 emails to the minister who did nothing wrong in the lead-up to the election, presumably congratulating her on doing nothing wrong. Yet the bloody socialists would have us believe that 136 emails might just indicate Scuttlebem did have his hand in the rorts which Scuttlebem's neutral department head has proven were not rorts. And as, as for that uh, Tasmanian former train killer Jackie Lumpen, well... You'll recall or not recall, most likely the latter, that a couple of weeks ago we handed the Principled Position Award of the Week to Rex Pat Prick of the Nick Xenophony lot over the Smash the Evil Unions and Evil Union Bosses Integrity Bill for his integrity in saying he won't vote for it if any of the ultra, ultra expensive train killer submarine trillions goes to Western Trublowazi. But if all the money goes to South Trublowazi, he's hoping base that he will vote for it. Real principle, real integrity. Don't consider the bill on its merits, or we might suggest lack of merit, and this week making a strong bid for the award, Jackie Lumpen. Also displaying her concern for the integrity of the integrity bill by declaring she won't vote for it if Scuttlebem doesn't come clean on his role in the rorts, which isn't a rort. Goodness me, Jackie, there's nothing to come clean about. Scuttlebem's totally neutral department head has proven that beyond all reasonable doubt. And if the government doesn't support her move for doing something about why so many train killers kill themselves rather than those they're supposed to kill, trained to kill, they're paid to kill. But it does support but if it does support then she too will vote for it. Support train killers and I'll support you. Killing the evil unions. Oh and there's one evil union boss Lumpen doesn't like, so it's a matter of principle of integrity to smash the entire evil union movement over one individual. <laughs> Imagine the trouble they'd be in if we could introduce a smash the parliament integrity bill given the huge numbers we don't like. Anyway, good to see Rex and Jackie bartering their votes as a matter of integrity. Given what's in the bill doesn't matter to them, presume they'll write a speech for opposing it if the government doesn't do their deal and a speech for supporting it if the government does do a deal. That's voting on its merits. Clearly, the smash the evil unions and evil union bosses integrity bill is essential for social order, meaning the welter of legislation making it a crime for a, an evil union boss to be an evil union boss and an evil union to be an evil union hasn't stemmed the crime plague that so upsets the integrity, the respect for the law of caring employers and their puppets. Uh, sorry, 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 didn't mean to say that, but sorry, the government. 
On which a grovelling and sincere apology to caring employers following my outlandish suggestions that given the incredible complexity of awards, poor caring employers just can't understand, and given the arbitrary chance of overpaying or underpaying workers when it's all inadvertent, then how come it's not half and half and the arbitrary chance comes up 100% underpaid? Well, do I have to gorge a huge meal of humble pie? For the caring employers have come up this week with a counterclaim that the incredible complexity has also led to workers being overpaid, which would carry a lot more weight, credibility, if they could come up with just one example. Not that I'm doubting them. After all, they're such good corporate citizens, such respectable pillars of, that we don't need a good caring employer's integrity bill, do we? The man, the great man who said he loves WikiLeaks when leaks helped him get elected, best leak ever, ever, but now wants to lock Julian Assange up for his life and, and then some for suggesting the US of just might commit the odd war crime. Well, well no, proving it. US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor, the commander-in-chief, yet again displayed his innate humility, which is his nature. He did say, incidentally, that he is the top legal official in the country, which shows how much he knows about his job, because... He isn't, but then he knows in his modest little way that it doesn't matter if it's not true. In fact, there'd be universal surprise if he said something that was true, but humility. Heading for India, he said the reception for him at some huge stadium would be huge, huge. It could be the biggest event in India ever. No, no, no embellishment there. He actually said that. What a modest, narcissistic megalomaniac showing he knows as much about centuries of Indian history as he knows about the legal structure of his own country, of which he's so proud, knowing they can, they can boast the greatest commander-in-chief ever, ever. But he can't believe these treacherous US of citizens gave the Academy Award Best Picture to a South Korean film. How can a foreign, foreign movie get the honour? How bad was the Academy Awards this year? He asked a screaming bunch of similar deep-thinking supporters. Hard to believe he got the grammar wrong, too. How bad were, not was. But it must have been a simple slip, because I'm sure he's also the most expert grammarian ever, ever. We've got enough problems with South Korea on trade. On top of it, they give them the best movie of the year. Was it good? I don't know. Indicating either he hadn't seen it or he had seen it and had no idea what it was about. So not only is he his country's greatest legal mind, but also its eminent cultural authority. Yet the cruel, cruel distributor of the movie bitterly counted, understandable, it's subtitled, he can't read. What an insult. What discourtesy. Doesn't it show the jealousy and envy truly great people, in the, this case the greatest ever, ever, must suffer for their greatness? And then at a press conference to assure citizens they had nothing to fear from coronavirus, thanks to his actions, the greatest actions ever, ever, he announced himself as the greatest ever, ever medical specialist, opening the way for Donald to staffle as many as 
four Nobel Prizes next year, given that the Peace Prize is a shoo-in over Donald's contribution to the Palestinian non-people, non-country cause, taking whatever little bits of land they occupy off them and thus leaving them nothing to fight over. And as the medical reassurance, it's totally under control, conference ended, they announced many new cases. Donald said the new cases were obviously Democrats bent on attacking him with fake news. Worst fake news ever, ever. Sorry to spend so much time on Donald, but for a satirist, he's a walk-up start. And finally, from London, facts that force us to admit again we were wrong. Sadly, the US of extradition case has proven Julian Assange's guilt beyond reasonable doubt. Documents found when evil, evil Osama bin Laden was assassinated show he tried to get access to WikiLeaks evil information no one needs to know about US of war crimes. Osama bin Laden, evil, evil Osama bin Laden, Julian Assange linked together. Case proved. It's like seeking information about poor Barnacle's insanity and therefore being responsible for poor Barnacle's insanity. Or more accurately, seeking information about US of Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and True Blue war crimes and therefore being guilty of those war crimes. Or if seeking false information from a news source, even a fake news source, is a crime, then based on the US of logic, Lord Rupert of Wapping would get life plus about 400 years just to make a good thing of it. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. And on the line, we've got Noah. G'day, Noah. How are you? I'm well, Annie. How are you? Good. I think that every time you hear Kevin, you uh, just sort of feel he summed it up. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, it's in. it sounds... Too fictional to be true, but of course we know it is. Yeah, I know, uh, and it's awful. Yeah, yeah, political satire is not dead, thanks to the ridiculousness of our political leadership around the world, and including our own. Yeah, including particularly our own at the moment. They yeah, talk about do. soft shoe shuffle with uh, lead feet. Um, yeah, yeah, indeed. indeed. I mean, I was, uh, I was incredibly. Uh, I mean, the the Peter Dutton. Um, episodes this week around his um, attempt to steer the public debate away from right-wing extremism in Australia and the risk of it was, I think, one of the most incredibly incompetent but um, underreported events of recent times. I have to say, it received no coverage whatsoever, but it was a huge um, statement on his part. And really, I mean, you know, a a journalistic... Um, uh, what would you call it, sort of uh, a, a, a proper journalism would have picked that up nationally and, and really pushed on that, but there was almost nothing on it. Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting because uh, there was a very good uh, uh, interview on Friday Breakfast here with a uh, German uh, person who follows, um, she's a, obviously a socialist alternative person and she writes for Green Left Weekly and uh, she was giving a comment on the uh, uh, um, po- political state of being in 
uh, Germany at the moment uh, mm. with the right as well as uh, the shootings. Uh, but she was pointing out that uh, in about 2003, there was a, a case around banning a particular far-right organisation. But the problem that the court had was that uh, how infused that organisation was with uh, members of the security uh, forces mm. in the country. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's very interesting. I mean, I think there is increasing evidence that the far right um, in Australia and def definitely in the US has been um, integrated into uh, right-wing politics, formal right-wing politics in, in different ways. I mean, it's very interesting because I think Peter Dutton's comments this week were really reflective of the work that has been done by the Murdoch press and the right-wing um, think tanks and other organisations in Australia to um, minimise the threat of right or, or even to um, deny any existence of right wing extremism and also to try and legitimate right wing extremism as a proper part of the political spectrum, um, which I think you know is indicative, I guess, of an alliance between the for me the the dominant elites in Australia, the, you know, the, the sort of neoliberal elites and uh, far right wing parties. Um, yeah, it's an interesting alliance because, on the face of it, they have they are actually have very little in common. Their interests are quite misaligned. But what they've, what I think we're seeing is a project to protect them and to mainstream them in um, in return. For their political support. Oh, that's fascinating. And and one of the things we were going to talk about was the death of Mubarak in in yeah. um, Cairo in Egypt, and in a kind of a way, he was the poster child of that sort of uh, collaboration. Really. Well, I mean, you know, he was. It's, he's an interesting figure in a number of ways. I mean, uh, you know, that's probably an obvious thing to say. But, I mean, on his death, one of the interesting things that came through the Egyptian press, but also sort of wider Arab press, was a sort of celebration of his, um, not so much his presidency, but more so his role as um, a sort of member of the Arab nationalist um, um Sort of uh, what we call it, um, push, uh, push, yeah, as an as a symbol of Arab nationalism. Yeah. I mean, he was a he was a, involved in the seventy three war, um, and he was an important military figure for a long time. And we have to remember he took over Egypt after the assassina assassination of Anwar Sadat. And for a lot of Egyptians, he dealt with the uh, threat of Islamic. Um, militarism and terrorism, um, which, you know, for mainstream or more sort of uh, um, Middle Egypt, that large part of Middle Egypt, was a real threat, one they felt uh, very worried about. So um, Mubarak's sort of legacy it, um, hasn't been completely tarnished by those last years of corruption and nepotism and uh, the sort of uh, police state that he constructed to um, repress Egyptian people. Partly, I think that has to do with the fact that what's followed Mubarak, the Muslim Brotherhood, and now Al Sisi, um, 
have probably made the Mubarak era look better. Than it <laughs> yeah. yeah, than people had um, had felt it was back in you know 2011 when he was overthrown. So, like um, terrible equals terribler. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It, it is. It is quite incredible that the the press has sort of um, moderated its um, attitude towards him in the last eight years. Now, there's a. I mean, I haven't been following it closely, but there's been uh, the sort of uh, social media response from activists and others at Mubarak has been less um, celebratory. But nonetheless, I think there's a certain. Uh, I don't know. Uh, a sort of view amongst a large proportion of uh, Egyptians that the Mubarak era wasn't as bad as, as you know, uh, as what things are now. How and much so, of a, a figurehead does a person play uh, over, you know, sort of wallpapering over the actual amount of power and, uh, uh, and legitimising of that power? So in Egypt, for example, yeah. that business about uh, the army, uh, army people own an awful lot of uh, land yeah. and resources, for example. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the, uh, Egypt is ruled by a military oligarchy that sits under the ruling party. Um, and that was really obvious. I mean, it was obvious in 2011 when Mubarak was overthrown because they manufactured a outcome that meant that the system stayed pretty much untouched. When the Muslim Brotherhood won the elections, um, uh, Mohamed Morsi and those around him miscalculated, I think, uh, greatly. They thought um, they could probably they could start to dismantle that military. Um, aristocracy or that military hold on Egypt, and they did throw it so in it by attempting to replace people, uh, members of the judiciary, the bureaucracy, the media, those sort of high-level state apparatchiks that were very loyal to the, the military. And within a very short period of time, um, the ruling, you know, the deep state, as people call it, that state un within the state, that really has control, uh, took uh, their revenge. And Mohamed Morsi was jailed and Muslim Brotherhood outed from power. And al-Sisi is the response or the reaction to that. So, yeah, very powerful, very, very entrenched. And the figurehead does give it some legitimacy, but it also masks the reality of the deep state. Maybe not as much as the deep state would like, because it's pretty evident to anyone who's watching Egyptian, Egypt, Egyptian politics very closely, um, that that's where power really lay. I mean, this is one of the things about um, Erdogan in Turkey. Um, over a 15-year period, he's been very successful in removing large proportions of the old state, the sort of uh, uh, Kamala state, um, and replacing it with uh, people loyal to him. and. We saw that most, uh, probably most um, strongly in the uh, attempt to overthrow him a few years ago, which included members of the military and, uh, and certain opposition um, elements, uh, which was crushed pretty brutally. And so he's a real Stalin. He, yeah, he's a real Stalin. He's really, I mean, you know, he, there's, he, he really does control the state um, and the military. And we can see that in the way he's pushed the military, military into Syria. Um, in uh, recent, in, in the last six months or so, um, so yeah, I don't. This is the thing about Egypt. The 
attempt by the Muslim Brotherhood to replicate the Turkish model failed uh, abysmally for them, which goes to show how entrenched it is. I mean, this is the remnant of uh, the Nasser state still in power, certainly, you know, corrupted far more than in his time and with less national interest and more personal interest um, at the forefront of what they're doing. But nonetheless, it is the remnant of that very model. And Mubarak was a Nasserist. He came through that system, um, but in, in a number of ways dismantled it, um, or at least moved the direction of uh, it away from uh, the nationalist project into one that was really about uh, protecting the interests of a very small number of Egyptian elites. Well, that's, that's interesting, the, isn't it? Yeah. That's the neoliberal model. I mean, yeah, once, yeah. You know, whether it was intended or not by Mubarak in the 90s when he moved to the neoliberal model, that's the outcome of neoliberalism everywhere. Sounds like uh, Italy, really. <laughs> yes, well... I mean, in a funny kind of way. Well, I mean, we live in a global system of neoliberalism where whilst there may be national differences and even, you know, differences within nations around how neoliberalism plays out and how it's structured and what power it has, the outcomes have been, globally, have been very similar. Um, and, you know, that's a result of the, you know, the, the privatisation, deregulation, the liberalisation and the reduction of the social welfare state or the redefining of the social welfare state in some places like Australia. Um, so, you know, um, I have a colleague who's done a lot of work on the social welfare state in Australia that, uh, and he claims empirically the social welfare state in Australia is larger than it's ever been before. Mm. But where those resources flow has changed dramatically. Yeah, yeah, last, straight into the pockets yeah. of big business. Yeah, so it's a transfer of wealth from uh, Money. the public into, into you know, different elite, elite hands. And, I know, it's just incredible. Um, it's, it's incredible, and the fact that people aren't uh, um, up in arms is, um, I mean, it, it, the, for the people that it's affecting, they're up in arms, but I, I just don't understand why people wear scratchy underclothes and uh, wear fine garments on the outside. I mean, you know, don't yeah. they realise? Oh, I think partly, I mean, I think some people realise, a lot of people don't. Uh, you know, there's a very strong propaganda, propaganda machine in Australia that... Yeah, um, nothing to see here, project. it's nice and calm, you know, people yeah. want to be calm. Yeah, or if, the, if there are problems, it's a result of X, Y and Z, yeah. um, rather than the, the prevailing system. But also, people reproduce the power system they're in every day. Um, yes, that's right. You know, you know we're consumers, uh, we're, we protect, you know, we talk, you know, even... You can see the Labor Party, which, you know, over the last 30 years has really adopted many of the same ideological, philosophical ideas of neoliberalism and espoused them back. You know, when they talk about, uh, you know, even when they're rejecting the claims of the right, they often use the language of the right. Oh, I know. It's really, really pathetic. So, but that's the power of something like neoliberalism or any dominant order is that people start to... Um, identify with it, and they start to use the language of it. I mean, this is why Antonio Gramsci's work and all the people that have sort of used um, the work of Antonio Gramsci or, you know, the sort of Marxist schools that have looked at ideology as a real uh, area of... or or the formation of cultural content as a real area of analysis have shown that, yes, whilst the material structures are very powerful, 
the ideological or cultural ones are really what keeps the system in place. That's right. Um, human human we, strength is its ability to, for culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and they're linked. I mean, there's no doubt that the material structures, you know, we don't, you know the privatisation of the media, for example, or, uh, or the corporatisation of the media, um, the way that uh, different uh, funding mechanisms for uh, universities and for other public oh, institutions have been changed, does in, it influence the way that ideology is produced. Um, and, you know, we can see that in the way that corporate entities in particular and rich individuals fund a whole range of organisations and, um, and individuals to speak publicly on, um, on a whole range of issues. And those people gain a lot of traction. I mean, the ABC, for example, is forced, and the BBC in the UK are forced to um, air the views of, of people whose... I don't know, they're... they're um, I don't know what you call they're them. Yeah, and their authority to speak on a subject is really minimal. Yeah, they, exactly, oh, minimal. Go and yeah, ask, only, go and ask um, Auntie, Auntie um, Jane at the back fence, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the people that they trot out to speak on issues really have very little formal training in any of these. They're just people with ideas that um, align with those of... Uh, those rich individuals and corporations. Um, and once you have that machinery in place and it's being reproduced over and over again, so a person says X and then that gets reproduced on radio, print, uh, social media, it takes the life of its own. And then it's really hard to dis- dismantle or to, to sort of um, oppose it. Then that system as we've had now for decades, it's really impos- almost impossible to dismantle. I think the real failure of the left over the last 30 years is not um, its um, uh, sort of failure of ideas. It's a failure to uh, produce a system where those ideas can be circulated through society um, in ways that match what the right has been able to do. Uh, um, we have tanks. to we have to finish on that note. Oh um, no! I know, but you'll have to come so back you, and have a chat for yeah. longer. So that's one. That's one reason why two two SER is so important because it is a place. Yeah, where we can, you know, we can discuss matters without being forced into the conventions of the dominant system. We can have ideas that contest the dominant ideas, and it's one place that still survives and allows for that, which, you know, we have to protect as much as we can. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Noah. It's been fabulously interesting. Thank you very much, Annie. Sorry we didn't get on to Saudi Arabia, but maybe that's where we'll start next time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that is the end for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We're going to go out with uh, a Ruby Hunter um, song because I really just wanted to hear her again. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.